haunted, as you probably may have heard me say, I'm haunted by the fact that when I was in the last Labour government, we made available about a billion quid in today's terms for a tram system between Bristol and South Gloucestershire. And because the politicians in South Gloucestershire and Bristol couldn't agree, we lost that money. That money went to Nottingham. As everybody probably knows, he's got a lovely tram system, which should have been ours. So I am not prepared to let that happen again if it's on my watch. I hope people will support me. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, it's the mayor. No, not that one. It's the Wecker mayor, the Metro mayor, the West of England mayor. His name's Dan Norris, and he came into the role in May of last year. He oversees transport, housing and adult skills. He's a former MP, so we ask him about what was life like under Tony Blair and behaviour in the House of Commons. Has it changed as we unpick the Sue Gray report and beef? There's been a little bit of politics between the leaders of the local authorities that Mr Norris oversees. Is he trying to create an impression or does he really believe in some of these changes he's trying to implement? So what's he going to do for the region and how can we put this area on the map as much as Greater Manchester, London and the Midlands? You've, you've been away from politics, you know, and you've really effectively been at the, the epicentre of, you know, political change. You came in as an MP in the, in the you know, infamous 1997 Blair Labour kind of victory. Things can only get better and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Then, you know, you've had a number of jobs in, in politics. Yep. And then you just went away, I guess. Was it 2010? Was that right? 2010, well, you lost well, well, against Rhys Mogg. And, yeah, then, and I, then you've been away from politics for, for 10, 10 years? Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. I mean, I've been out of frontline politics for about 11 years, I think it was, in the end. Um, mm. And that is part of democracy. People never remember this because, obviously, why would they? But, you know, boundary changes did for me because they changed the constituency that I represented for 13 years. You were Wandsdyke originally. I was Wandsdyke. People might remember that. And Which is Rick, where, for those that don't know? Yeah, area. it stretches roughly from Canesham is one of the main, if not the main town within Wandsdyke. And it went down yeah. all the way to Radstock, Midsummer, and over to Bath and sort of Whitchurch Village uh, and the mm-hmm. Tune Valley area too. So a large area, very beautiful uh, but very linked with Bristol, of course, because lots of people live and work uh, and commute and things. So very connected. I, and I've been out of sort of politics in the sense of party politics for 11 years, but you never stop being political. I've done that all my life. Uh, and I was political, of course, before I became an MP or a councillor in Bristol. So you were a councillor, Bristol City Council from 89 to 92 yep. uh, and 95 to 97. Yeah. Uh, a councillor with the old uh, Avon County Council from 93 right. to 96. You were Parliament Private Secretary to Peter Hayne. You were also Private Secretary to Foreign Secretary David Miliband. Yeah. Yep. And Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs in 2009 when you entered government. You know, this is, yeah. you've been at the seat of power, really. Well, I've been lucky to be in the right place at the right time, you could argue. I mean, it's also a government whip, which was very interesting too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think the thing that stands out for me is that you have got to kind of connect with 
the people. And, you know, I'm quite amused when I hear the Tories talking about their large 80 majority now. Uh, And there's no reference to the majorities that Labour had under Tony Blair, which was a 179 majority. So when they talk about the very large majority now, that is small fry compared to the majorities that I was used to and experienced. Um, And so we're now finding, of course, Boris Johnson's under pressure because he's losing that majority by the day because of all the shenanigans Mm. which we may talk about, of course. Yeah, that's sort of what I'm kind of leading to, really, that you would have been around, you know, as you say, that was a... I imagine a monumental night. The Tories have been in power for 17 years. 17 years, yeah. So longer than they've been in power in coalition with the Liberal Democrats, of course. Mm -hmm. And of course, people will have all sorts of views about whether that Labour government and series of governments was successful or not. In my view, it was very successful, most significantly because of the Northern Ireland peace process. And the reason I say that is because people do not realise the cost of all the troubles in Northern Ireland was costing us as taxpayers in in the rest of the country as much as the whole of the NHS budget and the whole of the education budget put together because the troubles meant you had to have loads of soldiers there, you had to have loads of security and, and intelligence and you know spying and all the rest of it. When nightclubs blew up, we had to pick up the bill because obviously no insurer would cover that sort of thing in a place like Northern Ireland at the time. So we ended up paying for all the damage. So you've got some dodgy nightclub owners blowing up nightclubs if they wanted a refurb at mm-hmm. the taxpayers' expense. So it's hugely expensive. So we've had not just the peace in Northern Ireland, which is really important. And remember, we had bombs in places like Park Street in Bristol as well on the mainland mm-hmm. uh, as a result of that problem. Do you think people forget that then, Dan? People always remember the problems. They don't remember the successes. And that's the, that's the lesson of politics. You're only as good as your kind of record as you deal with problems, and then they're pretty quickly forgotten. And, you know, that that is a challenge for politicians. You did vote with the government on Iraq, didn't you? Absolutely. I mean, I was a member of the government. Uh, That was my duty to do that. That's how our system works. Now, clearly, with the benefit of hindsight, things would have been done differently. But you don't have hindsight at the time. That's why we have politicians, because you have to make decisions at the time with the best, uh, best way you can with the information you have. But what, yeah. I, what I would say to you, Neil, and to people listening, is that I was aware at the time that in Iraq, Saddam Hussein was killing or people were going missing a million people every single year in Iraq. So a million people, good people, ordinary people, were going missing, most of them murdered, never to appear again. They, sometimes we didn't even know what happened to those people. And even with all the trouble after the war, it was about 300,000 people a year were being killed. So although that isn't something that people who are against the Iraq war will want to hear, what you can do is take one sum for the other and know that about half a million people, probably more, who will never know who they are, are alive. And so that's happened every year since then. The International Commission on Missing Persons actually estimates that between 250,000 to 1 million people are missing in Iraq. But this is the total from decades of conflict and human rights abuses, including Saddam's regime from 79 to 2003, and since the UK-backed invasion. So not every year, as Dan just said. So these things are tough, uh, and they continue to be tough, because governments now can't deal with what's happened in Syria, or what happened in Libya, or other parts of that Middle East. As you say, hindsight is an an easy thing, but obviously that set the kind of tone for the repercussions of of how we've seen the Middle East develop in the last sort of... 20 years do you do you think that was the right decision still now i do based on the information you had at the time i mean what was mm. the real problem and i was 
quite close to it, to be honest. Obviously, I was in government at the time. Um, the problem was that George Bush didn't come through on the undertakings he gave us. So he was interested in the first part, i.e. the yeah. war proper. But what he wasn't really interested in, I think it's fair to say, was the way you rebuild a society after things like that. Yeah, after that. Yeah. And I think he had this very puritanical view that you you know, you don't employ anybody who was to do with the Ba'athist regime. And actually, that would have kept yeah. law and order at that critical time after the war. You know, and I, for one, will yeah. never rest easy about what happened in Iraq, even though I believe we did everything we reasonably could, because it's war is a terrible thing. What the great shame was, in my view, was that Tony Blair rightly tried to make it all go through the United Nations, so it had buy-in from countries around the world. But unfortunately, as you probably know, Neil, in the UN, countries can have a veto and just one country can scupper everything. In the end, it was a couple of countries, as I recollect. It was France and Russia voted against the UN resolution to proceed. And and the reason they did that, so that people can be absolutely clear about what happened, was Mm -hmm. that Russia had sold a load of arms to Iraq, to Saddam Hussein, and so had France, and they hadn't been paid. So if there was a war, they would have lost all the money and, in fact, did lose all the money for the weapons they provided. So they weren't doing it out of a moral high ground. They were doing it because they had loads of money owed to them for the weapons they provided to Saddam and his regime. The lead-up to and the war itself in Iraq is a highly contested issue. I will say here that the official Chilcot report published in 2016 itself criticised by some for being far too lenient, found, among other things, that Blair and the government had not in fact exhausted peaceful options and had deliberately exaggerated the threat posed by Saddam's regime and the UK had, I quote, wholly inadequate planning in preparation for life after Saddam Hussein. And Labour obviously, I think, lost a lot of people, left the Labour Party because yep. of Iraq and, and, and Tony Blair... lost a lot of popularity and I think that perhaps that maybe was the sowing of the seed for you know alongside the financial crash where Labour to become unseated from power that was the the start of that process Uh, on that I don't want to labour this too much I want to get a little bit onto what's been happening in number 10 this week literally yesterday the Sue Gray report but the, the fact that many would say that new Labour didn't go far enough in some of the left behind communities in this country if someone was to say to you that New Labour were responsible for, indirectly, for communities, I guess, underclass, feeling unsupported and almost a precursor to Brexit and to this people voting for the Conservative Party, how would you respond? Yeah, I think there'd be some some legitimacy in that position. I mean, what I think, I mean, it's easy to look back and say you should have done things, obviously. But what mm. I think we certainly should have done is we shouldn't have put so much faith in the market to provide housing. We should have built more council homes, frankly. We should have said the state has got to deal with this because the market never will. Uh, and we're still dealing with those problems. Now, in, in, in fairness, that has applied to every government ever since and many before as well. But I guess people would ex- expect a Labour government to do that more, obviously. Yeah, well, it was all about money. Everything in the end comes down to money. 
And what we were doing was putting huge amounts of money, rightly in my view, into the NHS, because that is the jewel in our crown, I'd argue. You, You know, when you go around the world, people just say how fantastic the NHS is. And it's fantastic because Labour people back in 1945... Uh, and for the for the Labour government that was then subsequently elected, were determined to drive that through, despite the opposition of doctors and certainly the Tory party, who never forget, never liked the NHS, and I secretly think don't like it now, but mm. won't have to pretend they like it because it's become so popular in you know in our culture. Didn't, but didn't Blair start the? you know, the subtle creep of privatisation of the NHS, though? Well, I think it's true that he would have said that you've got to look at outcomes, and sometimes you can't be stuck by dogma. It's very difficult when people are suffering in pain. So if they're, ha- you know, you're probably too young, Neil, to, to even have to contemplate a hip operation. But, oh, I've had know, a, a it, knee one probably at some probably, point. There you go. They're <laughs> yeah. hugely painful things. So when you've got decisions like... Do you say, well, we're definitely not going to use private medicine under any circumstances, knowing that the consequence of that is many tens of thousands of people in protracted pain? That's quite a difficult call to make. So so we had a view that we would look at what would determine and produce the right outcomes. Now, mm-hmm. by and large, that was fairly successful, but there were clearly things that we needed to learn from. But what was important as well, it's never had better funding than it had then. It's fallen back now, of course, under the Tories. Would you call yourself a Blairite? Would you identify still with that? Well, I... That label? I would describe myself as a Labour winner, okay? I'm interested in power because with power, you can change the world and make it better. Mm -hmm. And nothing stays the same. So, you know, if winning for Labour was under Tony Blair in the past, I'm certainly part of that and very proud of that. But I'm also proud to have won the election last year, for example, against what many people were expecting. Mm -hmm. And and I've got a record of fighting and winning, as we discussed, Wandsdyke, which was a seat that Labour had never won before I won. So sort of practicality over purity, over ideology then? I believe politics is the art of the possible, but it's only the art of the possible if you win. So I grew up in a generation under Thatcher where my schoolmates, many of them, never worked their whole lives and still haven't. Uh, And that, to me, was outrageous. So it made me critically focused on winning because uh, it's no good having the best policies and the greatest of principles if you can't change the world for the better. Presumably on that, without labouring it, you're somebody that would be quite positive with the new change or the recent change in the Labour leadership. Oh, yeah. To Keir Starmer, yeah. Keir Starmer is a winner, in my view, as I discovered last year in my election, because I think he's a serious person. I think he has intense integrity, and I think that's hugely important now, uh, particularly in the context of this Conservative government uh, and Conservative Party, actually, because they chose Boris Johnson, and I think everybody who had had anything to do with him would have told you it was going to end up like this. The guy doesn't know what the truth is. So, Would you agree with the sort of, well, some would say ruthless, some would say sensible, depending on your position, the, the sort of purging of elements of the left within the Labour Party internally is a, is a positive thing. Yeah. Look, I'm of a generation, as I just said, you know, I grew up under Thatcher. I'm of a generation yeah. that remembers these arguments always happening in the Labour Party. They actually happened in the Tory party too, except that it's about extreme right-wing views. And in mm. my view, the reason why this government is so poor at the moment is because extreme right-wing Tory members, who uh, I think on average have an age of 70 years old uh, and certainly don't represent society as a whole, ended up choosing Boris Johnson to become the Prime Minister after Theresa May. 
And I think that that extreme right-wing view and, and not reflecting the whole age group of society, never mind anything else, led to Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister and then he used the Brexit arguments and circumstances. On that and on Boris, I just want to touch on, so yesterday we have had the Sue Gray report that's come out. I'm kind of interested really because you've been in government, you've been in the Houses of Parliament, you know, I've never been in there so I don't really know the culture. Hmm. A little bit of a pushback from some of the Tories in the last couple of days and certainly the reaction to, to some of the Report. We can't obviously talk about elements of it because it's a police investigation. But what we can talk about, there is a this is a direct quote: excessive consumption of alcohol that's not appropriate. This is directly from the report. Mm. Failures of leadership and judgment, events that should not have been allowed to take place. Staff real concerns about raising situations. They're kind of saying that this is the culture of, of Parliament. This is kind of you know we need to stamp it down. You were there. Was this like was this like that when you were a minister? Um. <laughs> I'm not a good person to ask because I'm actually a teetotaler, Neil. Okay. I really have been. So I wasn't okay. a guy who hung out in the bars right, uh, and all that kind of thing. But why Would you have been is, privy to rumours of that and stuff? Oh, yeah. No, look, look. People who have uh, drink issues gravitate to places where they can drink easily uh, as much as possible. Uh, and that includes politicians. And because it's a place that, you know, when I first was an MP, we had all night sittings quite regularly. Mm. Uh, And the bars were open for ages and ages and ages because there's a lot hanging around. So I think it does attract people who have issues about drink. Uh, And and there is an attitude because people do work extremely hard, despite what the public might think. Politicians do work late, I imagine, uh, often late at night. Yeah, late at night, and what? So they kind of socialize hard as well because it's a kind of hanging around is a you know an an awful thing. We all know that. I've done factory work. I remember you know the, the killer shifts were the ones where you're hanging around. Mm. And it just seemed forever. But the the trouble is, this is not about so much the drinking. It's about the judgment. It's about, in my view, this government believes that there are people who have different value in society. There are those people who are expected to follow the rules and those, some, and those people who set the rules and somehow think they are above them. And to me, yep. that goes against everything that I believe in and I believe the British people believe in because we we really hate that cultural attitude that difference that class view if you like of the world Mm -hmm. Uh, but we mustn't be surprised when we've got members of the cabinet Boris Johnson and others who've had a very different education and a very different class upbringing to the vast majority of us so we can't be surprised that this happens so this is a kind of Etonian entitlement well I think it's a modification of what the Tories used to be I mean I think there's always been people from public schools in the Tory party in Mm -hmm. huge and high proportion but I think they were coming from a better place because I think they were what were called one nation Tories, sure. even though their experience was different to most of us. And, you know, I come from a working class mining background. Um, yeah. Even though their experience was different from us, they kind of had a respect for different. Whereas yeah. this lot... Somebody, is- somebody said to me, who is, a, who is a Tory, who interviewed, that it, it's just not cricket. Yeah. That even if you come from the upper, you know, upper ethnologies of society and you come from a a very sort of Tory stock, there was always a sense of fair play where the, the feeling is this is a bit different now. Yeah, I think it, what's happened in my view is the Tory party has become, not immoral as often said, they do some awful things, they've become amoral. They have no values in which they check against. And the crime is not what you do, it's whether you get caught for it. So if you can get away with it, they'll do it, mm-hmm. is my view. So Boris Johnson is good at flanneling, 
and he's got away with it in the past. I witnessed that when I was an MP. His experiences, yeah. if he keeps going and keeps carrying on and ignoring it and just pushing it to one side, his yeah. personal experience is it doesn't catch up with you. Uh, and if that were to happen now, if he were to get away with it, I think that would be very bad for people's confidence in politics because I think the British public feel really, really cross about it at so many levels. And I just think that one of the things that is great about Britain is that our reputation around the world has been very high for our government and our legal mm. system and the rule of law and those things. And all this completely undermines that great history. We've given the world amazing things and mm. what Boris Johnson is basically saying is they weren't so amazing because I'm ignoring them completely and doing my own thing and I don't care about what anyone thinks or does. The, the, I guess the counter view to that is this is a, a media establishment. This is a witch hunt directed by Dominic Cummings. This is Labour sort of forces, forcing the hand of somebody that had a 80-seat majority, working-class people you know, that voted for him in the Red Wall seats. They just want... Um, him to focus what well, I think in his own words, what's he called it? The people's priorities, doesn't he? Which, you know, leveling up and all this kind of stuff that actually yeah. that, you know, this is, this is a coup d'etat to try and game him and stitch him up on, on things that, you know, that are quite trivial. Well, look, I mean, there is something to that. I mean, look, the opposition, the Labour opposition's job is to challenge the government because we believe in a system that if the government's challenged by the, a good opposition, you get better government. And I would argue that the reason Boris Johnson got into power and continues to be in power, although it's now looking threatened, good, which is a good thing, is because Labour didn't do its job in opposition for the last 11 years effectively enough. And if we'd have been more effective, so I take my responsibility as a Labour person, we mm -hmm. let the nation down, in my view, because we didn't give people a good set of options when they went to general elections to be able to vote Labour. Because if they'd have done that and we'd had a Labour government, we wouldn't be in the awful mire we are in now. Okay, let's talk Wecker. What does Wecker state? Well, the West of England Combined Authority. Do you know yeah. what? I want to try and rule out people using acronyms and abbreviations all the time because I reckon a lot of people, if you said Wecker, they wouldn't know what that meant. Well, do you know what, Neil? I constantly say about this to people like yourself and, and other journalists and reporters. I say, please don't talk about Wecker because it sounds like a massacre in Texas. <laughs> um, and please use the term West of England. So, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, if you yeah, start off yeah. saying West of England Combined Authority... And then so let's, let's, let's explain what this is then. Yeah. So this is basically a combined authority within the West of England, which is uh, Bristol, South Gloucestershire, Bath and North East Somerset. Your main areas of policy are housing, planning, skills and transport. And effectively, you were voted in 6th of May with a 59.5% second vote majority. Big job, Metro Mayor. You, you've replaced Tim Bowles, who was a Conservative. Were you quite surprised you won, first of all? Because I think a lot of people, they do see Bristol as a, as a Labour city, but the shires, for want of a better word, are often seen as being quite sort of Tory leaning um it wasn't a shock to me i was always okay. i was always confident that i could win if i could become labor's candidate um the bigger challenge was becoming labor's candidate in, in truth um mm. but the reason is is because and on that sorry on that you yeah. did beat helen godwin who was who was the favored candidate of the bristol mayor yeah that's right. That's right. But the thing, the thing is, this is the West of England. It's more than Bristol. So you have sure. to persuade Labour members outside of Bristol to support a candidate as well. Was I surprised? No, I wasn't surprised that I won, but I was surprised by the size of the majority. And, and, I, and I can't tell you, Neil, how proud I am to have been supported, mm. you know, in such a, such a great extent by the people who I care about in Bristol, South Gloucestershire, North East Somerset and Bath. Uh, it's an amazing honour. and I'm very humbled by it.
Did you feel rusty? You know, like if I, I don't know, I've, I've just <laughs> silly as an analogy, but if I've been, when I didn't play football for four or five years and then came back and played, it takes you a few games to get into your rhythm and your touch and your feel. Oh, did absolutely. you feel a bit rusty? Did it feel a bit rusty? Did, I know you did all the media debates on Politics West and stuff like yeah. that. Did it take you a little while to get your sort of feet back a bit? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it helps to be doing it little and often, a bit like your footy. Uh, if you're playing regularly, you don't think about it. You're just pretty on form most of the time. You might have a bad game occasionally uh, and a really good game occasionally, but you're, you're kind of there because you're constantly doing it. If, you, if you're out of politics for a bit, you think you're okay because you, you think you've remembered it all perfectly, but actually you are rusty. And that's a very astute point. Yeah. Not, and no one else mm. has asked me that. There's some great quotes here I want to read out. <laughs> I think you've been clearly been quite bullish from the get-go, particularly with the other leaders of the local authorities, which are Marvin Rees, Toby Savage, Youth Conservative, South Gloss leader, and Kevin Guy, Bath and North East Somerset, Lib Dem. You have to kind of meet on, on a sort of regular basis. Uh, you have said, with regards to a specific incident, uh, which did make me chuckle, you've called them the Hokey Cokey Three. Hmm. Uh, frankly, I'm dealing with the Hokey Cokey Three. Not sure if they are in or out, but clearly trying to shake something or about. I put the Green Recovery Fund on the table for the third time, and I have no interest in the latest excuse of the month not to vote it through. So this is you effectively overseeing and managing uh, a big amount of money that goes on specific uh, the climate change hmm. uh, projects. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you kind of coming into that trying to make a, an impression immediately to shake things up you know like a football manager comes in and they're like i keep looking using football managers you know try and make an impression straight away i guess is this you politicking a bit or genuinely do you feel that you know things aren't being done effectively right you've called out the previous uh metro mayor tim bowles uh, for i guess it being a little bit cozy people not having to be robust enough in putting their ideas forward so my, my question, I guess, is do you sincerely believe that's the case? The process is not right or are you just politicking and trying to kind of get a bit of a name for yourself? Um, I d- I'm genuinely believe it, Neil. I, re- I mean, look, when I was a Bristol councillor and I was really proud to do that, both in St. George and in Brislington, where I was councillor for, for two different wars at different times, what I saw was us missing out to other regions and it frustrated me hugely. And so this role is one where I'm absolutely determined, partly because of my age, because of my experience. In the end, words are just words. What matters is what you are able to deliver. You know, as I speak to you now, I'm thinking about all those people who are really worried about the future. And and I'm thinking, what can I do that will make a difference for them? Uh, And that constantly goes through my mind. So occasionally you will get me speaking very genuinely. I'm not a person Mm -hmm. who spins in that way. Uh, I was very frustrated that here we were putting forward £50 million to insulate homes. We've got a quarter of a million homes in the west of England that we need to insulate and make energy efficient if we're going to reach that net zero target of 2030, which I believe passionately in and want to achieve. Uh, And here we were, in my view, because of the messing about of other people. And I don't want to reopen those wounds because we're getting on well at the moment. You are you are getting on because obviously there was a bit of a sort of storming, norming, forming thing going on at, at the beginning. Well, well, I, look, let me let me say it without being personal because look, go on. I, I've got a job to do, and my job is to serve the people who voted for me and who I represent first and foremost. Before any any other concern, before these leaders, before my own party or anything else, the masters and mistresses are the voters and, and the people who live in in our region. 
and I have to respect them. And so in doing that, I am focused hard on getting delivery. To- so are, are you saying that that had got lost a little bit in some of these meetings? There were suggestions that I think there was a culture of having unminited Chatham House rules meetings before the meetings, a kind of sense of, of I guess, a kind of horse trading, yeah. sort of pork barrel politics decisions being made that you felt didn't honour the democratic process? Let, let me be diplomatic because I'm, I've got to try and keep people happy as we move forward because it is the benefit for our region. But let yeah. me be clear with you. What had gone on in the past, particularly under the previous mayor, was not acceptable. We had an invisible mayor and that meant our region was invisible. And if our region's un- invisible, we don't get the money from government that we desperately need for things like a public transport system. And since I've come in, people will probably have noticed we've secured 540 million for public transport over the next five years. And I am absolutely determined we spend that wisely and well so that we can lever in lots more money. Because if we're going to get the public transport system that we all need, and we certainly deserve, and you can see what happens in other regions, they've got them, why haven't we? If we're to get those things, we've got to get more, much more money, probably 20 times that figure, that sum, if you yeah. get a really good public transport system. So I haven't really got time to mess about with people who on occasion are more concerned about, you know, is there an amendment? Is it the right wording? It's crazy stuff. We're talking about half a billion pounds in the committee meeting last week. And the arguments are about whether people have had a chance to look at papers. Well, they've got loads of uh, local government officers who should be telling them all about the papers and giving them plenty of notice. Nothing should be a surprise. They need to get on with it. And I appreciate, you, you know, you have to manage a relationship. But, you know, you are a seasoned professional politician. You do know when you say things like hokey cokey three, that's going to be picked up by the media. Well, that's going to kind of go a bit further, isn't it? Or you have described Toby Savage as living in a parallel universe with mm. delusions of grandeur. That's only this, that's this month. That's not, that's, that's not isn't it? That's, yeah, that's, was last, that's that was know. last, that was last week. But look, last week. Me, yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty, you know, that's quite tough language for somebody that, is saying you want to keep a good relationship with people. Well, what I want is a good working relationship that delivers for the people who live in the West of England. And sometimes that means things have to be said and, you know, no, no, no punches pulled mm-hmm. uh, because I'm dealing with, obviously, you'll understand some daft things as well. Uh, and, and, and I have to handle that and get us all working together on f- delivery on what it is we're going to achieve. But all this money, I don't want it sitting in bank accounts. I want it out there doing things, making a difference to people's lives now. Now is the time. It's tough for people. I've spoken to a lot of people that actually think this is a bit refreshing. The distinction is, are you trying to offend people just for the sake of it? Or is there a better, greater purpose? And it's for the electorate and the voters to decide that. But I'm doing what I do. I'm trying to be as open as possible. I can't always be totally open because it's not the nature of the job. You know, there's things that are... Uh, about you know personnel and and obviously you know who you employ and all the rest of it is a private matter but where I can be open I will and I want to have meetings where rather than horse trading we discuss it openly because what we need to do to get more money from government is have a strategic vision and Mm -hmm. and and a way of you know so you know if we have a new tram system for argument's sake it shouldn't just be well South Gloucester says they want a bit of it and Bristol says they want a bit of it and Bain says they want a bit of it we should work out where's the best place for that tram system to go and it probably is bristol in truth because that's where most people are densely populated but we must do it on a strategic basis not just leaders get together uh, and then decide well let's just divvy it up uh, and it doesn't really matter if that's the best possible we could do for the community we've just got our share people probably have felt and do feel a bit in bristol that 
deals are done a little bit in, in back rooms and, and are not done in an open and transparent way. And, and obviously you would be aware that there's now a, a mayoral referendum in, in May because mm. councillors are saying the exact same thing. Some of you may know this, but we are having a referendum on whether we should have a mayor or not in May of this year. Last year, Bristol City Council in the chamber voted in favour of holding another referendum. And basically it means we will either retain the position of mayor or we will return to a decision-making committee led by councillors. But this change would only come into effect at the end of the current mayoral term in 2024. Well, look, look, Neil, I'm I'm me. Uh, I'm trying to be as open and as straight as I possibly can be because politics is a bit murky at times. You'll understand that. The electorate and your listeners will understand that. But we need to do it a better way. What I think we can all agree on is that Mm. how it's been done in the past isn't good enough for us, isn't good enough for Bristol, and isn't good enough for the West of England. We've only got to look at other regions of the country to see how well they've done. I'm haunted, as you may have heard me say, I'm haunted by the fact that when I was in the last Labour government, we made available about a billion quid in today's terms for a tram system between Bristol and South Gloucestershire. And because Mm. the politicians in South Gloucestershire and Bristol couldn't agree, we lost that money. That money went to Nottingham. And as everybody probably knows, it's got a lovely tram system, which should have been ours. So I am not prepared to let that happen again if it's on my watch. I hope people will support me. I'm not wanting the aggro of, of falling out with people because I'm a human being. So you don't, you don't. Have. I mean, because there has been a, there has been a bit of a, a kind of reaction and a, a sort of ganging up a bit, a slightly antagonistic relationship. So obviously, you know, he is a human being. So if you do say to someone like Toby Savage that if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, yeah. move out, all procedures are happening properly now. He's going to get a bit defensive, isn't he? If, as a hu- I mean, politicians are human beings. Of course. And, but I think mm-hmm. what's fair to say is that people were expecting after those statements were made uh, last, early last week, that at the end of last week, when we had the council meeting or the combined authority meeting rather, that there would be a whole load of aggro again. And there wasn't. In fact, the leaders all supported the programme that I put forward. So you you're know, not trying to be Mr. Big Shot coming in, Metro Mayor, cracking the whip putting your stamp on things well i am saying i am saying look we're not doing the things that we've done in the past i am saying we've got to change and people don't like change it's not just politicians human beings don't like change we all find change a bit difficult but we have got to change because there's so much at stake and that's what i'm saying so you know if people want to interpret is that me asserting myself well that's Mm -hmm. up to them but for me i was very clear If people did read my manifesto, which I doubt very many people did, they will see that the things that were in it are being delivered now. And I am trying to implement that to the best of my ability. Uh, And I hope that people will understand that, you know, politics is about passion. It's about strong beliefs. And so sometimes it gets a bit difficult, but it's real. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's sincere. It's genuine. It's authentic. And I yeah. think that's what politics needs. Rather than the Boris Johnson nonsense, we need a bit of authenticity and a bit yeah. of straight talking sometimes. What happened in the past has let us down and has not been good enough. And I have higher standards. Do you think Marvin Reese is a bit threatened by you? No, I, I, I think Marvin is a strong, confident politician who isn't bothered about me. He's got his own agenda. Um, if other people perceive it that way, well, that's sometimes what happens in, in media because that's a very interesting story. You know, it's much more interesting talking about personality differences whether they exist or not and and a lot of it is rubbish actually Neil to be fair Mm -hmm. but I understand that look I'm not here to complain about it I'm here to do the job that I've just mentioned and focus on that Uh, and occasionally 
um, you know, it gets a bit difficult. But but um, yeah, but you've engaged. Okay, all right. That, that, that's a fair point. That the media does. You look at you know the personality clashes stuff rather than um, policy at times. You know, it, it has the drama, doesn't it? But you know, you have obviously said stuff that's fairly emotive that would be picked up the media. You've kind of gone there with sort of personal. Uh, no, attacks are a bit strong, but personal kind of statements, and so you've kind of you've kind of created that situation yourself a little bit, Dan. Oh no, absolutely. And let me be clear, because it because it's the truth in my view, and people will judge that, and they did that when they voted, I guess, last May. But I felt that the previous mayor, I've heard that he's a very nice man. I've not met him, and I'm sure he is a nice person. I have no question about that. But it's not whether he's a nice person I'm concerned about. My job is a tough job is to deliver for the people of the West of England on huge multi-billion pound projects like public transport, housing, you know, business, skills and training, things that we have got to get right. You know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people's lives are directly affected by the decisions that I'm involved with. And this is our money. That, that yeah, if you, it's, so it's, you're saying if you feel that the money is not, is not being spent effectively and, and in, in a correct way, then you're going to... Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, be, I'm being me and people will like me or they will not like me. That's their call. Just interject there if I can to once again tell you about the Bristol Cable and this unique membership model. You basically pay every month, you get a chance to go to AGMs, you get a chance to have a say about what cable covers in its monthly newspaper and anything online from this show to videos to articles so if you are interested in doing that and you're one of these people who thinks you know the media could be better then check out the Bristol Cable website and become a member back to the chat let's let's touch a little bit on some of the the policy stuff housing there is obviously a you know housing uh, crisis um we have um you know, arguably some people would say, certainly in Bristol, that developers kind of have the run a little bit and, and have it kind of too too easy. How can we balance a thriving housing market by ensuring that it's for everyone and not just profiteering? Well, I think we've got a big problem because those developers and those housing interests provide about half, I think it is, of the funding that the Tory party receives to keep it running and going. Uh, and that, to me, is a very uncomfortable relationship because uh, it means that, you know, uh, clearly they're expecting something for that money. And I think we're seeing that because there's no real radical change to housing in a way that meets need and puts, you know, and doesn't put profit first all the time. So the answer to that is, is get a Labour government. And, uh, you know, you would expect me to say that, wouldn't you? But actually, that is the answer to housing, because while you've got a Tory government so beholden to all those vested interests, you are never going to get the change that we need. So you're hamstrung a bit? Well, well, if if we are not able to raise resources to build council homes, uh, what else choice do we have? We only have the market, and the market is completely distorted, and they're making huge profits. I mean, it is criminal in this time of want where so many people are desperate for an affordable home, not just to be able to rent or buy, but to be able to run, because, you know, electricity costs are going through the roof as are other energy costs, and people are genuinely making choices between heating and eating now, uh, and I think that is terrible and absolutely outrageous and unacceptable. Uh, and I will do everything I can to change that. But I have to be honest with people and say, look, it's about the fact that we totally rely on a private housing market motivated by profit before need. And lots of people don't understand that. I think that, and I think criticism is directed at, at councils. 
without necessarily always understanding the national picture and the national context? Yeah, well, well, councils have to borrow money on assets that they have to be able to build homes or come up with new initiatives to lever in money. But we talk about affordable homes, and it, for mm. many of our fellow citizens, that's completely laughable. It's because not affordable. affordable yeah. isn't affordable to a huge number of people, which I again yeah. think is absolutely morally wrong. Uh, and that needs a Labour government to sort that. Uh, a Labour government based on our own experience of getting it wrong. I think we did over-rely on the market uh, and the private uh, businesses that are involved in that, and it didn't deliver. And we must learn that lesson and make sure that the next Labour government, which I think we're probably quite close to now, can yeah. deliver on that front. And, and your job, in a way, is to, is to balance those different interests from citizens to developers to new builds to you know community projects. You know, And also, there's a very different... Uh, you know, rural and urban culture is very, very different and housing is different in different areas. It's quite a big kind of task to oversee. Almost would that is almost slightly overwhelming. Well, it is overwhelming in the sense of that the government are insisting on the number of houses that have to be built in the West of England. They've got a minimum of, I think, 105,000 over the next 25 or so 20 years. 20 years, yeah. Um, whatever the duration is. Uh, forgive me yeah. for getting it to 20 that. years, I think. 20 years, yeah. I'm sure you're yeah. right about that. Yeah. And you know, this argument that somehow, uh, you know, what I think is happening is I think that uh, Bristol definitely wants affordable homes. And Marvin Rees tells me that and he makes a strong case about that. And I think he's right. Uh, the councils outside of Bristol argue that it's too many homes. Uh, and they have some legitimacy in that, in that there is obviously the green space that we talked about that is lovely outside of Bristol. And we must protect some of that. But on the other hand, we do need more homes. Uh, and yeah. what I'm looking for, and I'm trying to persuade Tory MPs to persuade this Tory government, uh, the Tory MPs in our region, that is, that mm -hmm. if we invested in infrastructure, things like um, stopping flooding in large parts of Bristol, which will happen and could happen in an extreme emergency situation, uh, we could build on those bits of land that are now prone to flooding, and we could deal with that housing number quite comfortably, I suspect, building affordable homes in Bristol where people want them and the council want them and taking the pressure off those areas outside where they're less keen on having housing. But it takes a Tory government to invest in that infrastructure. They're going to have to do it anyway. Government is going to have to spend money on that infrastructure because a lot of that infrastructure was built a long, long time ago. It's wearing out. So it needs to be replaced You know, in any event in the very near future. Might as well get on with it now and then stop that flooding plane so that we can build uh, and, and deal with this housing shortage that we've got. Although you're right to say, Neil, there's different needs across the West of England because of their different mm. places. If we work together, we can probably get a lot of what we all want. So we could mutually benefit by cooperating. And council houses, that's obviously a, a, a big target. There are kind of that definitely does seem a, in recent times a, a drive for more council housing. But does, is it a lot of rhetoric? Because it's a, it's a kind of good look. It makes you kind of feel, oh, you're, you're building council houses. I, I don't see that much happening, certainly in Bristol. Um, I, I don't know about the wider, wider areas. Is that something that for you is important? Well, it is important because it's important to have affordable homes and the market's failing and failing really badly. So this is the only way, in my view, if you're serious about changing that in the short term, of changing it and being effective at that. But the problem we've got is we've got a Conservative government that doesn't believe in council housing. It believes in a house ownership. And that's why it gives all these incentives and it's given money away in ways that I think has been irresponsible and not appropriate. 
um, in order to encourage that to the detriment of other forms of where you can live, you know, affordable rents and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so that's why we've got a problem because we've got a government that doesn't want council housing uh, and we've got councils that are cash strapped. Now they can borrow money on their assets but the government makes it difficult for them to do that when it comes to council housing. And, you, and you'll remember um, from history, you know, council houses were sold off by the Tories because they didn't yeah. like them, basically. Mm-hmm. But they didn't allow councils to use the money that was raised from those sales to build new council houses, which would have been the logical thing. But, sure. it, but it's, you know, this is ideology, and it's an ideology that is divisive uh, and is detrimental, particularly to younger generations who are in some ways cash rich in that their income, they're spending on, you know, all sorts of consumer goods but they're unable to get on the housing ladder, the ladder or, to, yeah. or to afford the rents for homes. And that is a recipe for disaster. I mean, yeah, pati- I mean, it's particularly in Bristol, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's un- unsustainable. Let's move on to transport. One of the first interviews I saw you was on Politics West on a Sunday. Um, and when you were talking about the underground, you quite quickly, it felt like you quite quickly pushed back at that. And there was a bit of a look from Marvin, which was like, "Oh, I, I didn't, I didn't felt, I felt he didn't quite like that." That you made it quite clear that you're the, you're in charge of transport. You decide what happens. I'm presuming that you you don't feel any underground plan is realistic for the region. Well, it depends what you, what people mean by underground. Now, what I think people are talking about is like an underground system that they have in London, the London Underground, uh, yeah. and I don't think that's viable for us at all. I don't think we are going to have a London underground system for the West of England, but you if don't, it's never going to happen. That's a, I mean, because they've they've pushed that out as if it's a possibility. Even pre-election, this is this is something that could happen. You know, Chinese money, all this kind of stuff. You you, you think that's unrealistic? I, well, I think it's really hard to achieve because of the huge amounts of money that it requires. Uh, I think it's much more likely that we have a transport system like they have in other parts of our country, based on trams and other forms of transport, including cycling and walking. And buses. Yeah. You've got five hundred and forty million pounds for this. Is that right? You've been allocated. Yeah, which, which though it sounds yeah. like a lot, it isn't for what you need. If you want a public transport system worthy of the name, not enough. You need more. Twenty times that, at least, in my view. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because we're talking about it takes time. If I signed the contract tomorrow, uh, it would be probably thirteen years before it was delivered because these things take time to build and plan and all the rest of it. And I just think that, you know, we've got to be honest. Now, if it turns out that as we look at each stage of the plan for public transport, that we can have something that is along those lines, then, you know, make the case and I could be persuaded. But what I'm not going to do is promise something that I haven't had the facts on. I'm not going to give any blank checks to anybody. I want evidence. And it's not just me who needs convincing. It's the public needs convincing. Because as you probably know, Neil, there's a lot of cynicism out there amongst the public about anything to do with an underground. Whether that's justified or not, no one knows because we have to work it through, take it stage by stage. And if it turns out not to be possible, then so be it. And if it turns out that it's got merit, then we'll grab it because I want the best possible public transport system, whatever it is. On buses then, there is a kind of sort of debate at the moment around bus franchising like London. I think Andy Burnham and Great Manchester is moving ahead with that. That's something that you've been a little bit resistant to to jump on board? Why? I'm no more resistant than Andy Burnham. Andy Burnham's been in power, I think, seven years as Greater Manchester Metro Mayor, and he has just decided seven years on to look to a franchising model. The reason for that is, and I've talked to Andy about it, obviously, is that in order to have franchising, you need to be sure that you've got, this is a bit technical, but you've got what they call an income stream. In other words, you've got money coming in from whatever public transport you're running 
that covers the cost of the subsidies that you're providing for you know, bus routes, for example, that will never make money because not enough people will use some bus routes. So you've got to be able to cross-subsidize. Now, I'm not ruling out franchising as a principle. I think it could be the answer in the future, but we would need to develop our public transport system and be able to bring in money in order to fund that cross-subsidy. Now, in Greater Manchester, just so people understand, Andy has been able, after many years of thought and consideration and planning, to do that because he's worked out that the profit they make on their tram system in Greater Manchester, which is considerable, can be used to cross-subsidise buses where they make losses. So he's got an income stream. Maybe we'll have a tram system that can bring in that kind of profit, which would allow us then to go to franchising. So you know, it's constantly under review. I'm interested in it as a concept, but I'm not going to run a, a bus service or a transport service that could go bust because we run out of income from our income stream because the Tories would love to say, look what happens. A Labour mayor can't run things and then mm. we wouldn't be able to be in power then for a long time while the Tories reminded everybody what a disaster it had been. So I'm being cautious, sensible, uh, and I will look at what's happening in Greater Manchester with really keen interest because it could be an indicator of where we're going. In Bristol, it's definitely seen as a real a disaster and has been for most of my life. The transport... Is you know I've moved around a bit in, in in work and stuff, and it just I think Bristol is probably arguably one of the worst cities of its of, it, of its kind. And the bus services would it be fair to say the bus services aren't great? Well, I think it's fair to say that the bus services have improved greatly in the last ten years, but they're still a long way short of where I want to see them. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's why the bulk of the money that this five hundred and forty million that I've secured. I'm very proud to have done that so quickly, is to go on buses because that will have the maximum impact over the five-year period that that funding is available. And then, you know, I'm hoping that we're levering in lots of more money for other things, whether that's, you know, it might mean some tunnels, it might mean trams, it might mean a whole range of things. But what we've got to show is that we can use this initial half a billion pounds wisely and buses is the quickest way to make a real difference so that's what i'm focusing in on and i'm going to show the government if i've got anything to do with it how good we are at doing that and say give us more money because we've got other exciting plans since recording this interview there has been an article in bristol live written by adam poston hopes for a bristol underground transport system have taken what he calls a tentative step forward the region's political leaders have formally accepted this is a direct quote that tunnels may well be needed and this to be below Temple Meads and Gloucester Road. Does that hint at a mass transport underground system, or does that mean just a couple of tunnels with a tram system? Dan Norris hints at that, but doesn't give much more away. What about opening up some of the the old sort of train stations and stuff? Because some of the lines are still there. Is that a lot of people sort of talk about that? Is that just a pie in the sky thing? Then? No, some of the old stations will be opening up, uh, and there are plans to do that. The ones that are slightly more contentious are railway stations in places outside of Bristol, actually, because it's easier to make the case in Bristol because I think the case is stronger. Um, mm-hmm. But but outside of Bristol, places like Saltford between Canesham and Bath, people may know it, that yeah. used to have a railway station. That would be great to open that again. But yeah. there used to be amazing railway lines running from Brislington out of Bristol, coming up through Pensford, where I live, across the, the lovely viaduct there, going all the way down to Radstock, Midsummer Norton area. Mm. Uh, and I'd love, you know, my fantasy is that we could open that line up again, uh, because if you see the amount of traffic on the A37, it's absolutely terrible. Uh, and we need why did we get around. rid? Of, why did we get rid of so many? I mean, I, I, I say this because I always use the. Um, 
the Avermouth line, you know, for, yeah. for, for work, for work. I mean, which is brilliant. It's, you know, it's cheap as chips. It's, it's, it's kind of regular. Well, I mean, there are so many dormant railway stations. I don't, you know, without going into sort of too much detail. Why, why did, what era did all this sort well, of stuff? Well, it all happened in the 60s under a guy called Dr. Beecham. And they're known as the oh. Beecham Cuts. And you probably heard about them. And I'm sure people listening in will have heard about them. And it was because they thought travel and transport was going to become all petrol cars or, or buses. Uh, and railways yeah. were basically steam then as well so so it just seemed like the right thing to do it was clearly a massive error but as you just heard me talk about other things when I was in government it's not always easy to see things at the time but what I want to see is far more use of trains the Avonmouth line um, you talked about is a very important line and I'm really proud that we have just changed the frequency to be every half hour and what I want is our railways to have at least a half hourly frequency because I want people to turn up not have to look at a timetable and know that on average they'll only have to wait 15 minutes because then you get people getting out of their cars. Um, Let's talk about the profile of the role um, if we can that I think probably we said earlier that nobody knows what WACA means. Do you see that as part of your role to try and raise the profile a bit? Because you, you could argue, and I'm sure you would, that perhaps your predecessor didn't do that effectively. You know, I'm not trying to have a, a sort of higher profile as an end in itself. What I want is to put us on the map and I will do whatever that takes. So if I have to speak to government or I have to, like Andy Burnham has done fairly recently, come you know fallen out with the government and said look we're on it we're, thinking, we're, on it. we're not happy with what you've been doing then I will be doing that and I obviously am starting with the local councils because that's what I've got to get my head around I've been as you pointed out quite rightly out of frontline politics for 11 or so years uh, mm. I have to learn a lot of stuff tricky question and, and this is a sort of a broad thing yeah. obviously you've been out of politics haven't you for quite some time and you've got a yeah. fresh perspective as you just said coming yeah. back in hmm. um some people, I think, would say they've seen a change or do see a change in people when they've been in politics for some time that perhaps you just spoke about, I guess, a, a selfless um, pursuit for, for, for the public. Hmm. And, and sometimes that gets muddied a bit between an individual's ego or, or their own kind of role in it and, and that selfless service. Can politics corrupt? And, and have you seen that happen with people in your political yeah, career? Absolutely. Politics does corrupt. Not can it, it does. Uh, and my view is that if you're a good politician, you have to have put in antibodies to fight that corruption. And what I mean by that is you have to surround yourself with people who will tell you the truth, not mm-hmm. tell you what you want to hear. And you've got that? You've got people around you that do um, that? Well, I hope so. I'm never yep. so cocky as to say I have definitely, but I have people yep. that don't always tell me the things I want to hear. So most most days I hear something that makes me a bit fed up, to be honest. But I think that's really important because... Being grounded and in the real world is essential if you're going to make wise decisions. It must be tough, though, if you're suddenly propelled into a position where with a lot of power and a lot of influence. They are. They are. And, and, and it happens incrementally. It doesn't happen overnight. It's tiny bit by bit, so you don't notice. So you have to put these antibodies in. But look, I had a career before politics, and I think that's very important. Uh, and I was you a, were a social worker, yeah. I was a child protection social child protection worker. You know, it was the toughest job I've ever done, even tougher than this job I'm doing now. It was sad and painful and moving, and mm. and it and it changed me as a person. I hope for the better. Others will judge, but I've never forgotten that. So I don't, you know, I don't think the world's hunky dory at all. I'm always thinking of those people that I knew in the past and and 
and are existing now. And there's that Granger. My, my, funny enough, my sister is a, a senior social worker in, in, in child protection. I know it's a stressful right. job. Well, you'll but I definitely that. think, yeah, and I, mean, I definitely think she does have kind of a sense of perspective. But look, other people will judge whether I have that. I'm not arrogant enough yeah, to yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think it helps because I think that if you've seen real poverty, if you've seen the extremes of violence and abuse, you know the world isn't a perfect place. Uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons why I think we've got problems a little bit with the government at the moment, because I think if you have been excluded from the realities of life, uh, you only can see it through a certain prism. Uh, and I think that means you end up making poorer decisions for it. And that's and we'll wrap up now, but that's, you know, we do have leaders in all sectors that you know, disproportionately come from a privileged backgrounds. Politics is supposed to be arguably the most representative, you know, it's open to anybody to sort of play. If politics can't get that right, and we're still, you know... Marvin Rees is a good example of that. Marvin has come from a challenging background, and he's shown what is possible, and that is of great credit to politics and to Marvin. But what I would say, though, is that I am shaped by my experience. You mentioned that I worked as PPS, which is a, a sort of aide to Peter Hayne when he was Northern Ireland Secretary. And that was a period when we were closing the peace process and, and finalising it, a very critical time. And I had to work with actually the most difficult people you can ever imagine. So you would have been working, you would have been talking to Jerry Adams and, and McGuinness. Ian Paisley, and, and, McGuinness. And thought, yeah, okay. Talking to yeah. people who are murderers and done all sorts of horrendous things. Uh, so I've dealt with the toughest people you can possibly imagine. Uh, yeah. And so that makes the West of England comparably much easier. <laughs> so that's why I am doing what I'm yeah. doing. It's not to okay. strike a pose. It's because that experience has been helpful. And I am impatient. Yesterday yeah. isn't fast enough for me to get our region back where it needs to be. Lovely. Uh, thank you ever so much, Dan. Most appreciated for giving out your time. I, I understand you've got somebody that's nowhere near as important as me that you need to talk to in, in about 10, 15 minutes' time. You're, absolutely right? you're absolutely right. I think I've got Michael Gove. You're right, Neil. As always... <laughs> thanks Dan all nice the best to you. thank you very much you. take Bye-bye. care many thanks to the West of England Mayor Dan Norris for talking to us we will be back next week but in the meantime if you want to hear any of our previous shows then you can get all of them on the cable website but also on Acast Spotify and Apple Podcast thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked I'm Neil Max, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton our audio producer Adam Cantwell Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. And if you do want to become a member of the cable and join Bristolian members all across the city chipping in every month, then please go to the website to find out more. <laughs>